Let's attend at this time to the word of the Lord. Do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father, a younger man as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters in all purity. And this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. God, we do give you thanks and ask that at this time, once again, you would meet us here over your word that we would be new, transformed, changed, molded, shaped by your word that we might serve you more and more faithfully, love you more dearly, now and forever we pray. Amen. Please be seated, and if you would, grab your Bibles, and if you turn to 1 Timothy chapter 5, we just read verses 1 and 2, I'm going to continue on through verse 16. Paul writes, honor widows who are truly widows, but if a widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show godliness to their own households and to make some return to their parents, for this is pleasing in the sight of God. She who is truly a widow, left all alone, has set her hope on God and continues in supplications and prayers night and day. But she who is self-indulgent is dead even while she lives. Command these things as well so that they may be without reproach. But if anyone does not provide for his relatives and especially for members of his household, he is denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Let a widow be enrolled if she is not less than 60 years of age. Having been the wife of one husband and having a reputation for good works, if she has brought up children and shown hospitality, has washed the feet of the saints, cared for the afflicted, and devoted herself to every good work, but refuse to enroll younger widows, for when their passions draw them away from Christ, they desire to marry and so incur condemnation for having abandoned their former faith. Besides that, they learn to be idlers, going about from house to house, and not only idlers, but also gossips and busybodies, saying what they should not. So I would have younger widows marry, bear children, manage their households, and give the adversary no occasion for slander, for some have already strayed after Satan. If any believing woman has relatives who are widows, let her care for them. Let the church not be burdened so that they may care for those who are truly widows. How do you measure growth in godliness? How do you measure growth in godliness? I worked about 30 years ago with a man. He just graduated from college. Uh, and while we were working together, he was training to be a professional athlete. He was training to work out and try out for professional baseball teams. Um, and I have to tell you, I never met an athlete like Ernie. Ernie could do absolutely everything. He was, he was completely amazing, so far above. I've known good athletic uh, people in the past, but man, he was far beyond the abilities to do anything. He could do physically absolutely anything. And at, through the year in which we worked together, I kind of worked with him or saw him at least go through some of the training in which he was, he was happening. I'm telling you, this guy could hit every pitch, every pitch, any, wherever the ball was. And not only could he hit it, but he could dictate where the ball was going to go. He'd be able, you know, and the, the pitches are coming. This was not me pitching, but other 
people or machines pitching 90 miles an hour. He could dictate, okay, I'm going to hit this one over here, I'm going to hit this one over here, and it would go exactly wherever he was, he was claiming. And he could throw the ball from one end of the field to the other in ways and, and hit a bucket that we've had set up there. He could do that. He had the most amazing abilities, and he had the self-confidence to go along with it. This guy was absolutely convinced of his abilities. He knew of his abilities to do great things. And I've got to tell you, being a part of him, watching what he was able to accomplish athletically, I was stunned the entire time as well. I was utterly convinced that he had every possible ability you would ever need. Now, how do you measure his athletic ability? It wasn't, however, what he thought of himself that was important. It wasn't what I thought of him that was important. What ultimately mattered, of course, is what the scouts thought about him. And as amazing as he was in my eyes, and as amazing as he was in his own eyes, he was not amazing in the eyes of the scouts. And he never, ever was able to break in at all, even though everything I saw was this amazing thing. How do you measure success? How do you measure, in this case, growth and godliness? Now, we're asking the question because this is where Paul leads us in this text. He takes us from chapter 1 in 1 Timothy where he's talking about the importance of the truth and maintaining the truth of the gospel and holding forth before every opposition the fact that we are saved by grace and by grace alone, that there is nothing that we do to contribute to our salvation, that this is a work of Christ on the cross and by his death on the cross we are saved and any deviation from that, and Paul uses his own life as ex- illustration for that. He uses false teachers as bad illustrations for this. Over and over again, he reinforces that truth. And then when you get to chapter 4, Paul then links together the idea, if that is true, it should have a transforming effect upon your life. You should be different if indeed that truth that we hold on to is rooted deeply into your hearts. And so Paul then says in chapter 4, in the middle of chapter 4, train yourself in godliness. And he tells us a little bit about how to do that. Teach these things, live your life this way, attend to worship, attend to the word of God. All of these kind of things, Paul then says, look, this is how you train yourself for godliness. Well, how do you measure your training? How do you know how you are doing? It is not a question of how you feel about yourself. Now, it would be great to be able to say, you know, those times that I am really devoted into the Word and that I'm committed to worship and I'm in my small group and I have my accountability partners with me, that those are moments where I feel really close and intimate with the Lord. That is a step positively in godliness. Or it would be great if it were a question of what other people think of you. Hey, you know, this is a really godly man. This is somebody who's devoted to his faith, devoted to serving his Lord. All of that is possible. That's not where Paul goes. How do you measure growth and godliness? Paul goes from asserting that growth and godliness is something that we should reflect as part of the truth of the gospel, immediately to saying, this is how you treat one another. This is how you treat other people. How is growth and godliness measured according to Paul in this this text? It is a question of how we treat one another. And what Paul has in mind here, later on in the text, he will speak about how we speak and how we treat those who are outside 
the faith. But right here, he is speaking specifically of how we treat one another in this room. Now, I will say that as your pastor, I get to witness how a lot of people treat one another and how you talk about one another. And I know how you talk about me and how I talk about you. And it's really convicting to hear these words. Verse 1 Paul writes, do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father, younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters in all purity. He begins to talk about the measure of our growth in godliness. How do we measure that growth in godliness? By how we treat one another. And his encouragement initially is treat one another as family. Now, I don't know how you hear that, but, I, you know, the general assumption is that you're supposed to treat one another in ways that kind of reflect the love and the care that we have for family members. We should be nice to each other. We should, be, we should treat each other well. We should kind of treat each other in ways that we kind of connect with, with one another, those kind of things. That's kind of natural. That kind of naturally falls out of the equation. But notice that Paul doesn't describe how you treat a father or how you treat a mother how you treat a brother or a sister. And I think in part that's because some of these things are very culturally contained. In different cultures, and some of you guys know this, you study the Far Eastern culture or ancient cultures in different times, even the culture, the cultures, different cultures that exist here within America, you find that there are different ways in which family members interact. There are some, some cultures where uh, a high level of respect is the thing that dominates family relationships, or a question of obedience, or a question of, of interactions and communication that happens before. There are lots of different ways in which we treat family members, or should treat family members, and Paul doesn't get into any of that. And I think that's because that's not his point. His point is not how we treat one another, but why we treat one another this way. What Paul is saying to us is not, look, this is how you treat each other, but this is why you treat each other a certain way in growth and godliness. We are to treat each other as members of the family. That is, that when I interact with an older man, I'm supposed to interact with him as though I am interacting with my father. It, when I'm interacting with a younger man, I'm supposed to interact with him as though I am interacting with my mother, with, with my well, brother. Uh, women, as though they're my mothers or sisters. Now, that isn't a dictate of how I do it. Rather, what Paul is getting here is, how do you perceive them? How do I perceive you when I am interacting with you? Now, this is really important for us, I think, today, because the way we define ourselves, the way we think about ourselves, is radically different than the way the Bible directs us to do so. Over the past decades in particular, but this is something that has been going on for centuries, literally, there has been a shift to understand, to define the essence of who I am as what is inside, 
the way I think about myself, what I understand about myself is the ultimate defining characteristic of who I am. If I think of myself a certain way, then it is incumbent upon you to treat me that way because that's the way in which I truly am. How I truly am is what is on the inside. And that is the key, key characteristic. And only I know what is truly on the inside. So it is incumbent upon you to get to know me so that I can tell you, look, this is who I am on the truly inside. And that's the way in which you're supposed to react to me. That's not what Paul is saying here. Paul gives the why we are supposed to treat one another in a certain way as a measure of our godliness. Because it is a measure of how we of, of what we understand we are. The essence of who I am is not defined by what I think. The essence of what I am is not defined by what you think. What Paul is saying here is the essence of who I am depends upon my relationship with Jesus Christ. The essence of who you are is not what you think of who you are or not how you want yourself to be. The essence of who you are is grounded in nothing else than your relationship with Jesus Christ. When I interact with you, the primary thing that dictates how I treat you is not what I think of myself. It's not what you think of yourself. It's not how I think of you. It is the reality that if you are joined with Jesus Christ, we are family members. The most important thing about you is not your gender or your job or your what you do during the day. It's not the most important thing about you, according to the scriptures, is if you are joined with Jesus Christ. And if Christ is your Lord and Savior, then he is your brother. If you feel that way or not. When you feel that way or not. When you experience that or not. And so the greatest interaction that you have with one another is recognizing, is engaging with them as though they are a fellow member of the family of Jesus Christ. And I don't mean here the family of the humanity. You know, we are all members of the human body and the human race and that kind of stuff. The scripture talks about the biblical family, those who are joined in Jesus Christ. And so when I interact with an older man, I am interacting with one who is my family member first and foremost. When I'm interacting with a younger woman, the first and foremost thing that I share with her is our union together in Jesus Christ. And this is, this is not just words to say. This dictates and drives our understanding in the way we treat one another. And it is a measure of our godliness. If the first thing I do when I interact with you is I see you as a fellow member of Jesus Christ. That's what Paul is driving at here when he talks, when he says these words about treating each other as fathers or mothers or brothers or sisters in all purity. B 
because we are linked together first and foremost by Jesus Christ. But that's not the only thing here. If we are linked together by Jesus Christ, if we share that bond together, then we will treat one another graciously. Now, when I say graciously, I don't want you to hear me like we treat each other nice. Of course we do that. But that's just civilization. That's the way we raise our kids, to treat each other nice, regardless of if they're members of the family of, of Christ or not. We want our kids to treat each other nice. We say that over and over again. You know, treat your siblings nice, stuff like that. But when I say to treat each other graciously, grace is not something that just comes automatic. I don't believe grace comes to us by God's intentional design and consciously on God's part. And that's the way he expects us to interact with each other as well. Why do I think this way? Look at the very first words in verse 1. Do not rebuke an older man. There's the assumption here that the older man should be rebuked. Paul is not saying here, don't ever rebuke an older man because he never does anything wrong. The assumption is that the older brother here, the older man in the church, has done something that deserves to be rebuked. And what does Paul say to Timothy? He doesn't say, don't rebuke him. He says, don't rebuke him, but treat him as a father. What is treating each other graciously? Treating each other graciously means looking at them, looking at one another, knowing that there is something wrong, and deciding to treat them graciously anyway. That's what's happening here in this passage. Paul is talking, how do you handle, not when things are well, how do we treat each other when everything is going great? We can talk about that. But how do you treat one another when you're in opposition with them, when you're struggling with them? And you guys all know this, how quickly it is, how quickly it is to treat each other suspiciously. How, how quickly we think negatively about one another. How quickly we think critically of one another. We have a conversation. I'm telling you there are some people, and you guys all know, you know, I can't say anything well because whatever I say is going to come across badly to that person. Or people t interact that way with me. Whatever they say to me, I think critically or negatively about them. And the scripture here calls us that, no, first and foremost, we are supposed to think graciously of them. Now, that does not mean without discernment. Remember, if you were listening when I read that whole section about the widows? What, why that whole section about the widows? It's all built in there as an illustration. The widows, by the way, in that society were the least of the least. They were the most vulnerable of all society. And as Gandhi has pointed out, the measure of who we really are is how we treat the most vulnerable in our society. And so after Paul says, look, the overarching picture here is to treat one another as family and to treat one another graciously, then he says, take the widows as an example, how you treat them. And a whole lot of that section deals with treating the wi widows in your society with discernment. Are they truly in need? Is this a situation where we really need to get involved in those kind of things? There's discernment here. Graciousness, treating each other graciously, doesn't mean that we turn our brains off, that we quit thinking. Gracious treatment of another person realizes who they really are 
and yet nevertheless responds to them with God's love and grace because the first mark that we share together is our family in Jesus Christ. The fact that we are family together. So we treat each other graciously, but we also treat each other humbly. We have to treat one another with humility. Now where is this? Do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would. The word encouragement here carries the notion of focusing upon the other person. Humility is not thinking less of yourself, it's thinking of yourself less. Isn't that a cute little phrase? Okay, it's not thinking less of yourself, it's thinking of yourself less often. It is focusing upon the other person. And what Paul is saying here is your growth of godliness is measured in part in how much you want to think of the other person, how much the other person is important in this conversation. And so I encourage you, the first, uh, the verse three says, honor, what does it say? <laughs> I can't read it. Honor the widows who are truly widows. It's a, it's a call to honor somebody. And let me tell you, you cannot honor somebody without humility. You can't honor them without an expression of your humility. And incidentally, as you are working to honor me, it's going to be impossible for you to do that without grace. Grace, giving me, giving each other that which you do not deserve. That's how we will encourage one another. That's how we will honor one another. That is a measure of our godliness, according to Paul here. Train yourselves in godliness. Here's how you do it, the end of chapter 4. And here's the outcome in chapter 5. We will know how to treat one another as family. We will know how to treat one another graciously. We will know how to treat one another with humility. My thought is that that is an eminently measurable stick that this shouldn't be hard for you. When you interact with people, to measure, it's very hard to do, but it should be easy to self-reflect. When I think of this person, do I first and foremost think of them as my sister in Christ? Do I first and foremost think of them realizing that they're not perfect, but committed to give them better than what they deserve? That's grace. And when I think of them, do I think of myself less because I am so committed to them? I think if we take any amount of time at all to think through and analyze our relationships, we can easily see the growth in godliness that comes from the truth of the gospel. I strongly encourage you to think through Commit yourselves, once again, to treating one another as family because that is truly what defines you. You are a child of the Savior, now and forevermore. Amen.